on the market. And that is uh, uh, in itself uh, significant because, uh, you know, uh, Russia does not like uh, the idea that uh, uh, oil might uh, decrease in price for a number of reasons that are, you know, uh, finance could explain better than uh, probably most people in this space. And actually, I'll pick up a little bit on that. Uh, Papi, I, you're, you're done talking, right? I didn't jump all over you. Uh, I, am, I am done barking, yes. Okay, good. See, I, I, I was worried nowadays that it's a glitch and then I'm talking over someone. Um, so, um, I actually have a follow-up on the basis of that. And it's uh, this, uh, you know, the Saudi plant increased by 4 million barrels a day, which, as you say, is very significant increase in volume. Um, might this be... Uh, just on the basis of what they've discussed at the US, or uh, is the rapprochement between Iran and Turkey, as well as uh, you know Iranians talking to the Russians, um, maybe a part of that uh, rationale for the Saudis? The current wing of the Saudi royal family has some agreements with Russia. One of them is related to oil production and controlling the amount of oil available on the market. However, Everyone has been hedging their positions and everyone made mistakes. So right now, the situation is too complicated for people to continue with their original plans because the enemy always gets a vote. Back in 2008, the regional powers were Turkey as a rising economy, Egypt as a political superpower, and Iran as a rising military threat. Fast forward to the future, Egypt is more or less in a very problematic solution right now. And the United Arab Emirates has more or less uh, claimed the quote-unquote cultural leadership of the Arab world. And the current wing of the Saudi royal family is battling against that, both culturally and economically, by trying to force all companies operating in Saudi Arabia to move their regional headquarters from Dubai to Riyadh and launching a couple of mega projects, as well as uh, going... Not too fast, but also not too, too slow with a cultural and a societal uh, change plan to rebrand the kingdom when it comes to human rights and women's rights, mainly. Turkey is going through uh, a lot of economic problems. However, given the fact that their industrial sector is still performing quite well and their exports are still performing uh, better than most of the countries in uh, the Middle East, they only lack a proper macroeconomy uh, strategy to leverage uh, uh, this, uh, this advantage. So I can say that everyone in the region right now is uh, scrambling to reposition themselves, reconsider their alliances, reconsider the scopes of those alliances, try to separate interests from one another, this is uh, this is a very complicated region. It has been complicated for more than a century. I like to call the Middle East the Metal East because everyone seems to be meddling in it. And everyone seems to be for, I don't know, I, for better or for worse, everyone seems to be focused on short to medium. Uh, what's the term? Uh, short to medium. Term? Yes, sorry. Short to medium term gains instead of uh, thinking of the long game. But right, right now, some of those countries are trying to readjust that and trying to create their own long game. For some countries, the long game is survival at this point. For others, the long game is regional hegemony. And for a few, 
the game, the long game is maintaining balance or maintaining peace while making sure that their economic interests are not hit hard. Those would be Kuwait, Oman, and to some level, uh, Egypt. So it will be quite interesting to see how this unfolds. It's going to be a very hot summer, but then again, also not until the end of next September or early October, when we will see exactly what those repositioning moves uh, amount to. And why do you say only the last hundred years because of essentially hydrocarbons, or are you trying to deny that this has been the Middle East already since Roman times, or should we go back to Babylon? Well, I can always choose a reference point. I can go back to uh, the, the Mahdi Wars in Sudan and say that this is the most relevant uh, zero reference point to the timeline we are in right now or i can say it's uh 1914 and then 1919 in egypt or i can say it's the foundation. you know that i was making a joke right i know i know i know and I'm, I'm expanding on it so it's all about moving the reference point right third party observers get to move the reference point and then from 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 that point they can Roll, roll on with, with a timeline, and that comes with narratives and polymorphic narratives and parallel history accounts and historical accounts, official accounts, unofficial accounts, declassified accounts that change the official account, and so on and so forth. It's, it's just it's a, it's a polymorphic region. It has always been polymorphic since, since Kilipatra, but yeah. But isn't it nice then for a change that with Ukraine fighting for survival against Russia, you have a simple binary thing? Oh, absolutely. But then again, also the gray zones are grayer than ever right now, since you're watching some politicians and some heads of state trying to maneuver around a very difficult and a very complex situation to not achieve common goods, but try to just uh, disentangle certain complexities that will serve no one but the enemy, because they only inflame old animosities and... Uh, old conflict uh, fault line. So, in a way, uh, you know, we, we have an Arab uh, proverb, uh, disasters for some, blessings for others. Uh, not to sound uh, impolite or rude or anything, but this is just the reality of things. So, in a way, yeah, the Russian invasion of Ukraine kind of uh, put everyone in their own place. And that's why we'll see negotiations between those countries and between uh, global powers that prove what they have to offer to the world and what they have to offer to their allies and uh, allies and what they have to offer to their own people. So interesting times, exponential times. Everything is moving too fast, actually. So what you're telling us, since you came last week, things have been completely boring. You've been sitting there in Cairo drinking coffee and doing nothing. I get around. But I, I was I was in London for a week. Escaping yeah. the heat. Sorry? Said escaping the heat. No, actually, uh, it was quite humid over there and gloomy and rainy. But uh, we were actually having one of the best Julys uh, in the last six years. It's not it's not that hot at all. I don't know why. And no humidity whatsoever. It's quite, quite strange. Very well. Very well. Uh, Nina? Uh, thank you, Domin. Mm, uh, Erdogan and uh, Putin and who is this? Uh, um, what was the country? Uh, you mean the Iran, 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 meeting this like a terrorist state. Uh, I'm just thinking of this picture of uh, Erdogan also being like some kind of mafia guy. Um, uh, actually, he uh, Tur Turkey is a NATO country uh, that's like a, a threat to NATO. And uh, 
he's worried about the terrorist uh, good terrorist we we have in Finland and Sweden so yeah this is just like a really interesting picture but mm, no no question no comment just uh, yeah thanks. all countries all countries have cards and all countries are playing their cards everyone's playing their narrative someone in the united states thought it was okay for biden to fist uh bump uh mbs instead of uh, a warm handshake but now everyone's saying that fist bumps are for friends so he shouldn't have uh fist uh, bumped him for instance uh here in the middle east the arabic coverage is that uh mbs fist uh, bumped uh biden to show that uh, he clutches the future of the united states in his fist yeah it's just that uh, we have we have a very interesting folk story in uh in egypt it's about uh, a guy called goha goha was considered uh, a fool by some a madman by others and a very wise cynical man by a few so one day uh, goha was going on an errand with his son and he was riding his donkey so people passing by said look at the cruel man he's riding his donkey and he's letting his son walk next to him so goha got off the uh, the donkey and allowed his son to ride the donkey and they passed another group of people who said uh, look at the rude son he's riding the donkey and leaving his father walk next to him so they both rode the donkey and people you know said Look at the inhumane Goha and his son. Both of them are riding this lovely donkey. Their weight is too much. So they got off both of them and walked next to the donkey. Passed another group of people and that group of people said, "Look at these idiots. They have a donkey, yet they are not riding it and they're walking next to it." Eventually Goha ended up going to his destination carrying the donkey with his son. So you can't please everyone. You can't convince everyone. In a healthy democracy, everyone is entitled to their opinion, and uh, journalism plays a very important role in reporting on events and policies. And this is why media literacy and transparency have become so important for involved citizens to form informed posi- uh, positions and opinions, so that they can vote. So it's a never-ending story. So. No, I really missed your stories the last few weeks, such as this one. I think it's excellent. Shahrazada says hi. I'd make a quip, but it'd be inappropriate, so I won't. Um, yeah, I know. I know no, you, no, no. There's no such the thing as an inappropriate quip from you. Well, this one would be. Anyway, uh, we've got Adrian Trainer. Um, uh, sorry, I just pressed the mic by complete mistake, but I'm glad to be up, and I'm glad to hear uh, our. Uh, a uh, favorite uh, expert on the muppets m here i always love to hear him so uh, thanks for being around i'll stick around and listen and jump in if i have something of value to bring once a kermit always a kermit i know i even downloaded a few photos of kermit kermit training at the gym kermit wearing a suit but yeah putting kermit to uh, retirement for the time being poor kermit oh, it was just for the summer uh irene Hello everyone. I have a question about the discussion now between UN, Turkey, Russia and Ukraine about grain export because I have seen some Ukrainian reports that like they are worried about about, about some compromises to uh, uh, to demine the port in Odessa to export the grain and have a strategically a disadvantage later um, um on defending odessa and and the port so they feel pressured now to do the 
morally obliged thing, but no one cares what a consequence Ukrainian will have later on. And UN makes the pressure. They actually probably have their own interests. So they feel like they feed uh, the world, but no one really cares about how they strateg strategically later have all kinds of military disadvantages in demining the, the, the port now. This is the impression I had when I was watching a few, let's say, um, YouTube videos about this. Maybe you have some, like, what should Ukraine do in this case? And what, what, a, um, for, what a consequence it will have when they will, like, follow the, this pressure? Because I think the economic advantage of it, uh, selling the grain, of course, it's one part. But what kind of, um, yes, disadvantages they get militarily, strategically later. Any volunteers? It is only a point, like, a topic in the past days and there are a few news that um, they get a compromise that ukraine will demine it and the question is what putin has in mind uh, in putting them uh, in making this situation and i think uh, maybe ukraine will have then a big disadvantage with this I might be the least qualified person in this space to talk about this, but uh, I can parrot uh, what uh, the analysts seem to think, uh, which is uh, this is uh, not likely to happen. That uh, uh, is all I can say. I don't know what what, um, what are the sources of uh, your information, Irene. But, well, um, well yeah, some Ukrainian news, and uh, of course now you have the. Uh, national one news on TV, but uh, some Ukrainian news, and they they say at least they say that um, there will be agreement in favor to to reopen, and uh, there are some critical and and you never know who from Ukrainians are on the table, so they are not trusting, of course, everyone. Uh, who is uh, like representing them? So this is the impression I had uh, on these few videos, and this is uh, worrisome, I think, because um, yeah, they 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 say that UN makes for sure pressure um, to 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 reopen it, and morally Ukraine has a difficult situation. On one hand, it has to defend its uh, its its uh, Odessa and ports, and and don't take any. Uh, advantages that uh, it has now uh, in this area, but uh, on the other hand, everyone is like morally pressuring you. You you are starving like uh, Africa, and this is just uh, um, yeah. They feel in this case a bit abandoned. Uh, this is was in the comments and and of course in in this news uh, channel also expressed this way. But let's see. What will happen? I was thinking maybe it was already discussed and there's some, and I missed something, some points, because it's a bit worrisome. And I hope it will not come to to the point that they uh, demine and, and make vulnerable in this in this region, in, in the port. Yeah. Ben? Um, if no one is willing to take the risk, I can give a few element of answers. Um, not, not a full structured one, but just a few thoughts. The first one is that uh, our military expert has explained time and again that demining wasn't uh, as easy as, as that. Uh, it's actually a, a fairly complex and lengthy process. So even if 
everything is signed. Um, it's going to take m weeks and probably months and maybe even, you know, close it from 12 months and six months for uh, a channel to be to be uh, demined and usable by by um, commercial ships. So that's one point to take into account. Uh, so who knows what, what, what the situation is going to be in six months. The second one is that you can really, really push back on the fact that uh, what Ukraine does or does not do is um, threatening uh, Africa. It is not true. Um, there, as far as we know, and uh, uh, Domin and I, we, we've looked at the numbers. Um, there's no um, country that is presently at risk based on last year's um, uh, imports that is so completely dependent on Ukrainian wheat that it could starve within the next within the next year. So um, the pressure is not there. Um, uh, and was there something else? U Ukrainians also said this, uh, that the amount is not as significant. So the disadvantage is uh, to demine it. And later on, they said that it would last at least four weeks to uh, export all the grains. So what what uh, in this point, it's really fragile, uh, like, yeah. So you're, you're, they said it, it is no, it doesn't have such a big impact, but the question is what is UN pressuring what is saying? And I hope that participants in this, in this discussions now, um, yeah, the, the, the outcome will be in favor of Ukraine and not, yeah, some illogical export pressure and later on, yeah, disadvantage for Ukraine. I foresee an actual rant about the fact that the UN representatives are not military people and know nothing about this. If Axel is not going ahead, then he's probably not listening. Lost Axel. No, we'll have a, no, no, no worries. Uh, we'll get uh, more input from John in a second, I think. John? Sorry, mate. Thank you. No, I, I was just very briefly going to uh, address, uh, I think it was Irene's point about putting a desperate risk. I mean, any, any amphibious operation at this point to try and take Odessa is a, a suicide mission of such epic proportions. I mean, you could expect pretty pretty much a total loss for whatever force attempted that. So I, don't get me wrong, I completely understand the caution um, and the desire for Odessa not to be put under, you know, at, at any further risk than, than it already is. But I would just say that a risk slim to none at this point and as soon as her son is retaken it is literally none yes i am um, it's for sure but caution has to be like we have to be cautious of this and some political powers can can make decisions which we cannot understand later and yeah let's so, well, the, the i think the biggest risk right now to odessa is the multiple cruise missiles that russians keep lobbing at it uh routinely right and earlier this week, they struck the port for the first time in quite a while, if not the first time overall. Um, and I think that came to a great degree as a reminder, is to say, you know, even if you try to open up the port for shipments, we can just ruin the port infrastructure still. And what are you going to do about it then? I think that's a, that's a significant part of the Russian threat right now to Odessa as well. And specifically, you know, had all of this effort been gone through, uh, to demine the access to the port, 
which, as was noted earlier, is no small feat uh, because you know, demining the sea isn't isn't a trivial task that takes no time at all. Right? Um, there's there's yeah. always still that as a yeah. As I was a, just they don't need to destroy the port. They just need to create instability. So the ships are not going to... Commercial cargo ships aren't going to go uh, there. Even if, even if they hit nothing in the port and hit around or in the water, it's a sign that they, that they hold the cards. They don't have to be effective. And they're not, but they don't have to be. That's a good point to add. Precisely. And this is often raised on this face as well. You don't need to open up the port of Odessa for significant grain shipments to still be able to leave Ukraine. Uh, they have activated uh, the various canals in the lower Danube uh, to quite considerable effect. Yes, there is logistics optimization that still needs to uh, needs to happen there uh, to get more ships loaded in the ports such as Galatsi and Ismail and Reni. Uh, they're also working, and there was a note today from the Ukrainian ambassador to Poland, uh, they're also working on uh, improving the train transport of grain up to the ports in, uh, on the Baltic coast, both in Poland and in the Baltic states. Uh, so that's still something that's being worked on. Uh, interestingly, on this front, uh, the Polish and Ukrainian governments are said to be working together uh, on, you know, kind of dispelling uh, Russian propaganda and Russian talking points uh, when it comes to their counter, uh, counterparts in various African, and I believe specifically North African countries, uh, that are worried about wheat supplies. So even if it's, you know, as Ben said, it's not necessarily a critical matter, it is still an important matter in a number of countries. Uh, and But the Ukrainian and the Polish governments are, you know, doing their best to also uh, try to tamp down any uh, any problems in uh, uh, those areas. Thank you. Thank you, Irene. Um, ben? Um, yeah, since M is here, and I hope he's uh, still still listening, I was wondering if you could give us um, an impression of the state of the military industrial complex in the West, uh, because the the general impression up until February twenty third was that uh, we were uh, declining, uh, limiting capacities, uh, limiting budgets. Uh, is it changing? Has it changed already? Is uh, is the Nadir behind us, or are all the, the the speeches that are being made yet to take effect, or potentially never going to take effect? Uh, if you could pull up his um, crystal crystal ball again, uh, I know twice in a day I'm a bit greedy, but I'd be very thankful for for a general industrial uh, explanation. First of all, I don't like using the term uh, military-industrial complex. Western countries, democratic Western countries, have robust defense industries thanks to their robust educational systems and thanks to the prevalence of capitalism, to the dismay of the disgruntled layman and the uninformed citizen uh, of the world. So, firstly, let's not use the term quote-unquote, military-industrial complex. They have defense corporations, defense companies. Those defense companies, they pay taxes, they provide jobs, they innovate. Some of their innovations made their way to civilian applications. Uh, You wouldn't be uh, taking uh, your travel coffee mug or your tent or your Coleman uh, water bottle had it not been for those uh, defense uh, development, research and development contracts during World War II to provide uh, 
American soldiers with what they need to sustain themselves on the battlefield. As for your question specifically, uh, I'm not quite sure. Are, are you asking whether Western defense companies can ramp up their production to fill the stores of their depleted uh, weapon systems and, and ammunition being sent to help Ukraine? Or I, I don't, I don't, I can't really put my hand on your question. Um, okay. Thank. First of all, thank for the for the explaining me that. The expression wasn't the correct one. Uh, no, what I meant was not so much can, because I guess they always can, but are is it what they're doing at the moment? Have you seen an uptick in in anything from production to hiring to potentially they're even starting to build new, new factories or at least talking about new, building new factories? Is, is there a change of scales? Is there a change of culture that is happening uh, of outlook? Or is it just more of the same, uh, pretty much? Because, like, if you take, for instance, in France, uh, there have been a lot of speeches about Nexter, uh, which is producing the Caesars, and which famously are, like, producing 10 a year max. Um, but and, and so the result is that how they, they want to be able to produce 100. Um, and that's what the minister said, but then we have not heard anything since then. Fair enough. It was just a couple of weeks ago. But so is it representative? It, it, sorry, is the will, the political will representative? Is the And have you seen the beginning of a response from the industrial side? All right. Yeah, I get your question now. I don't have any information about this because I haven't looked into it, but we can uh, lay it out uh, for our listeners to understand what they need to look for and what they can deduce out of it. First of all, in the United States, for instance, there's the uh, Federal Bureau for Jobs or something like that. I don't know the proper name, but basically it's a federal uh, agency that tracks uh, hiring through different industries. So you can check uh, their website to see if there has been an uptick in hiring across the defense sector. For instance, uh, they reported an uptick in hiring across uh, oil and gas, uh, the oil and gas sector in the United States. So to see whether those companies are hiring or that sector is hiring more people or not, you can go back to your federal bureau or your government agency that is responsible for tracking job market and jobless claims and new jobs created. Secondly, most of those defense companies are publicly traded and therefore their financial uh, statements are declared, uh, I think, four times a year after every quarter, sometimes biannually only, and sometimes annually. So you can track whether they have been making profits, and if they have been making profits, that means that more orders are coming in vis-a-vis their profits in previous years. So this is how you can deduce whether the amount of orders, actual orders placed and paid for and delivered uh, are happening or not. Most of those defense companies as well issue statements uh, when they receive contracts from clients, whether the contract uh, type is uh, exploring uh, an idea or exploring the uh, possibility of delivering a platform, whether the contract is actually developing a a platform from from scratch or providing a platform or solution that they had already developed uh, for a certain client. Most of those countries issue statements when they receive orders 
and when they sign finalized contracts uh, with their clients. So you can also track to see if there has been an uptick in those contracts and which types of platforms, which types of ammunition, which types of uh, guns or uh, barrels or systems are being ordered by uh, domestic and foreign clients. Last but not least, you can also track the uh, federal uh, budget appropriations and see whether the federal government, specifically in the United States, is appropriating uh, certain amounts to deliver certain equipment, and therefore knowing whether those equipment are coming from actual stores or being manufactured, and whether by supplying them to Ukraine, they will be replenished, and therefore new orders will be made to replenish them. So I, I, to answer your question specifically, I haven't been following that angle uh, in depth. But it's quite easy for anyone to uh, read about it because most of the information about that sector, when it comes to contracts, when it comes to uh, the amount of uh, systems being built and delivered, is more or less uh, public. Okay. Uh, I hope that was a good question and good answer. Yep. Ben seems to be appreciative of the answer, seems to have had some technical difficulties in the interim as well. Uh, so I had to drop down. Good. Excellent. Thanks very much, Em, as per usual. Um, we have a new speaker with us, uh, Reyu511. Sorry, I can't, uh, I can't actually read your, your call sign. Reyu, if you have something for us, you, feel, you can feel free to go ahead. Please go ahead. No, I think that's uh, not very good audio, right? Please go ahead. This is an English-speaking space, by the way. Um, I reckon that is a bad connection. Um, I'm, I'm going to gently let them down because um, that's not going to get any better. So, so it's a study bot. Drop him. Very well. Kafteli, uh, morning. Thanks, Sam. Thank you. Yeah, I, I want to support that this, this is a bad term, military-industrial complex, when we look at the... Um, well, you have to begin with industry. You need industry to have uh, any... But if you look at the early days of uh, when the weapons were invented, you would see that um, there were this uh, tradition is started by people like Archimedes and Leonardo da Vinci, uh, who were trying to uh, help their cities to defend from invaders. Uh, I would rather call it arsenal of democracy. And um, in terms of uptick or whatever, I think it's hard to track because there was a project, I think Pentagon um, opened a kind of, was it RFK or something? Uh, and there were over 800 companies uh, uh, produced about 1,300 projects to, to make weapons for Ukraine with the lengths between one month and six months. Now, to what extent there is uptick in hiring it's hard to tell, but to begin with, these are not like you would not need like mass labor here. Uh, they are probably, you know, a few people and new labs are doing here more in R&D than, um, you know, all those huge uh, factories that are making like Ural Wagon Zavod. It's, um, the West is working differently, like three people who know how these things really work. They 
team up to start up uh, and make the prototypes in some garage or something. It's it's different altogether, you know. It's in Russia that would be they would go and find uh, anywhere they could uh, create a big lab, uh, have them in a big building, have a uh, political like uh, an ideologist to kind of basically held weekly meetings uh, brainwashing employees but uh, in the end they will produce nothing at best they will figure out uh, how a technology invented in the west 10 years ago uh, would work but the, again different tradition different approach different result um, that's there are some inherent values in freedom and people working freely but that's uh, i'm going on a tangent here uh, so checking the optic like i said uh, most of this work of innovation is done by very small groups of people who really know something uh, so i don't think you will see somewhere you know an announcement we are hiring ten thousand specialists in something because they probably none and there are very few who have ideas at all. So thank you. Thank you, Alex. Um, you know, in some places we did see um, sort of job ads and the like, uh, where say Lockheed Martin might have a, uh, might have operations, might have production facilities. Um, so you know, some of some of that you do see, right? Uh, Lockheed Martin, for example, expanding its javelin production and the like. Uh, there were actually job ads, but I, I think that. You know, to, to some degree in general, you're, you're probably right. The most serious stuff, uh, you're probably not going to find it public like that. Um, there are also a lot of robots involved in this production. Like uh, if you see in course. modern production in the West, uh, like uh, 90% of job is done by robots, uh, which are also invented in the West. So they, they would need r operator or somebody who is training those robots, but those are very highly specialized skills. So again, I, I do not think they need some mass, uh, muscle cheap labor like, like in some of third world, well, in some other country. No, quite right, quite right. Um, I have a question for you that we were kind of discussing a lot over the past week. Uh, there were uh, news of uh, Ukrainian HIMARS Gimlers striking uh, various S300 and S400 batteries, uh, both, I think, in Ilovaisk and various places in Kherson Oblast. And from that, a lot of Russian military bloggers were then complaining, oh, but we were told that, you know, the S300s, S400s, they're just going to take these, uh, these Gimlers out of the air and instead they're being destroyed by them. You know, our... Uh, defense industries lied to us uh they they said they'd be able to do this um now obviously they, they weren't able to actually take out the HIMARS missiles um but my question for you em is uh, how do you think turkey feels now that they've invested into the s400 program and maybe some other countries that have been buying s400 recently um how do, how, how do you reckon they feel now that they've seen them Know, fail so miserably against uh, far cheaper you know, ballistic-ish missiles uh, launched from a high-mass platform? This is a good question. The uh, S-300 
would be good against uh, fighter jets and, and, and bombers. So using it against the rocket artillery is a bit of an oxymoron. I think uh, probably the only missile defense system available in the world right now that would be adequately effective against high Mars missiles or rockets is uh, the Israeli David sling or David's uh, sling. Now, how the Turks feel about uh, investing in the S-300? I don't know. I can't uh, fathom what they were thinking in the first place. And I shudder to think what their planners are going through right now after seeing the devastating uh, effects high Mars systems had on S-300s. Uh, Egypt also purchased S-300s. Uh, they are positioned to protect uh, some quite valuable assets throughout the country. But again, their primary deployment is against uh, aerial targets, not rocket artillery. So it is a good question, but also it's more of a, how do you feel about using X against Y when X was purchased and more or less designed to function against Z but the PR and the marketing and the propaganda said that, you know, X can annihilate anything from A to Z. So uh, that, that's, that's all I can say about it. I, I really don't know what the Turks are thinking right now. Uh, then again, uh, when they fielded uh, TB2s with the, uh, I think it was Kazakhstan, yeah, against Armenia and how TB2s uh, annihilated a lot of Russian air defense systems in Armenia and in Libya as well. So it's just, it's, it's a good question, but I really don't have a proper answer for it. More of a, you know, a story to tell. Yeah, I didn't really expect a proper answer. I was expecting some, you know, what you delivered, uh, some, some assessment and some uh, light speculation on it as well. Um, I just found it likewise very amusing uh, when there was a meltdown on the Russian side of, but they told us, but all of the advertisements said that it could be, it could do all of these things and then it didn't and then it couldn't. And that's very amusing. Russian, Russian defense systems are more like uh, the template for uh, detergent ads all over the world. A guy walks in wearing a white uh, coat, trying to convince uh, a lady. Then again, all single men do their own laundry, right? So it's also a very sexist uh, template. Uh, <clears throat> yeah, smear this with chocolate, smear this with uh, grapes, smear this with wine, smear this with coffee, smear this with uh, dirt, you know, and your son's shirt is going to look as good as new as it's coming out of a plastic bag. Everyone buys that. But then when reality hurts, when you realize that you can use uh, this gel and this uh, oxygen activated uh, additive and this uh, softener, the shirt never goes back to its original condition, right? So I think the reputation of S300s, probably S400s, are tarnished for the foreseeable future. And uh, ladies and gentlemen, if you're listening and if you would like to come up and speak and maybe ask a question, uh, just click that request button in the bottom left corner of your screen and we'll bring you right up. Uh, if you'd all be so kind as to share and retweet the space, uh, that'd be greatly appreciated as well. Uh, it probably appears to you as a purple stadium uh, that's what a 2D equivalent, a sphero cylinder, is apparently called in the bottom right corner of your screen. Uh, Alex. Thanks. I think those systems, S300, S400, will go the same way Russian tanks are going. We are, they are expensive, but do not really cut it. 
Like, it's not, a lot of people are speaking about so-called military analysts are speaking about death of tanks, but it's really death of T-72. You need to upgrade it and you need, and, but altogether need a different tank for different purposes. It's not death of tank, it's death of Russian innovation, if anything like that ever existed. So I think S-400 will share the fate of T-72, where it's expensive, but pretty much uh, not up to the task. And we are already seeing. Yeah, Alex, I think we're we're in agreement here. It's too. Uh, no, they were they were over over promoted for what they ended up being in the end. Uh, and a number of countries, not just Turkey, a number of other countries, you know, bought wholesale into them, and uh, you know, now, now they're having to look at them being destroyed from simple rocket artillery that they were told this would work again. Now, of course, they they work reasonably well, seemingly against uh, cruise missiles. Uh, but not versus these sort of rocket artillery ballistic-ish uh, trajectories that uh, are launched out of the high mark. Mic check? Yeah, we're here, puppy. We're here. If there are no hands up, and we have a quick question for Emma, maybe, or something that I was uh, wondering. If it is a... Yeah, go ahead. So, um, there will be a point uh, when the highly successful high Mars uh, and M270 will probably start being proportionally less effective, be it because, uh, you know, Russians are taking countermeasures, uh, because uh, uh, the number of targets uh, uh, in range will be, you know, uh, fewer. Uh, I am wondering when do you see this uh, moment to come? If it is uh, near, uh, meaning uh, uh, if, uh, you know, 10 more high Mars or 10 more M270 uh, are at some point not going to be as effective proportionally as the ones we have now. Or you think that the number of uh, um, potential targets and uh, the countermeasures that uh, the Russians can take are not going to impact uh, the near future of this? That would be something that I'm curious to know your opinion on. This is actually a very good question. Um, however, it's quite difficult to answer. But let me use a gaming analogy. Uh, if anyone here played uh, Command and Conquer Generals, uh, if you're using, uh, or if you uh, select the General uh, Granger or Granger of the U.S. Air Force, you get access to uh, stealth F-117As uh, and uh, supersonic bombers, right? And if you're fighting against uh, an AI uh, bot or another player who chooses to, or who chose or chooses to uh, play using uh, one of the Russian generals, you would know that it requires two upgraded F-117As to take out a point defense. Uh, it was a Gatling gun turret, and it takes two uh, supersonic bombers to take out a power station. So as a player, you need to economize your assets and you need to time your assets. You know that the supersonic bombers fly faster than the F-117As. So you send in, you, you select, click select, and you select two F F-117As from one of your airport fields and you target one of the turrets after you do some scouting, 
which is basically sending a stealth unit close enough to uh, your enemy's base so that you have a line of sight of that turret so that you don't send your assets into the unknown because the game has a fog of war. Or you can use your satellite reveal uh, uh, feature, which is something that is not available in real time throughout the game. It takes 10 or 15 minutes to uh, between every, every single time you use it, so you use it wisely. So you either use the satellite reveal to light up the target, or you send in a stealth unit to light up the target, and then you send in your F-117As to take out the turret, and halfway to their destination, you order your bombers to attack the power station. And in this manner, you can sequentially take out the point defense and then take out a high-value target, which is a power station, because you want to deprive your enemy's base of power. So without access to the intelligence uh, Ukrainian uh, Armed Forces Command has right now, and without access to the number of assets uh, they have in theater in their positions and their distance from enemy lines, and without access to the calculus of the Ukrainian command, high command, when it comes to which targets need uh, to be taken out first to go along their plan or to respond to a threat to some of their forward operating bases or forward operating forces, whether it's an offensive or defensive mission. Without access to all that, you cannot say, uh, we need six more HIMARS or 10 or 16 or 60 in order to change uh, the tide of uh, the battle in the Donbass, right? So that, that information is privy to the Ukrainian government, the Ukrainian Armed Forces High Command, and their uh, global community partners and allies. And uh, intelligence communities and defense ministries uh, helping them uh, defend against this invasion and eventually winning the war. So to answer your question, no one in operating within the open source domain can tell you that you need a, an X number of A and a Y number of B and a Z number of C to win the battle in this geographical part of Ukraine. The, the consensus is that they need more because they prove that they can assimilate technology quickly. They prove that they can deploy those assets effectively and adequately to take out Russian targets and prove that they can conduct maneuver warfare where they make sure that even if they have to strategically retreat from a certain geographical area, they would have bled the Russian and made them pay the price for every inch of land they advanced to, right? Bottom line, Ukraine needs more, and Ukraine deserves to get more. And since they have demonstrated that they can quickly assimilate those platforms, since they have demonstrated that they can adequately, adequately field those uh, assets, and successfully target uh, Russian systems and Russian targets to inflict maximum damage or making sure that their losses are to, uh, kept to a minimum, then their partners and their allies should coordinate with them on their needs. And therefore, the political will should stem from the results that they have demonstrated in theater and on the battlefield. But to give specific numbers would be... Uh, almost absolutely impossible.
شكرا عفوا بيتر ثانك يو I'm wondering uh, whether uh, attackums may be easier for S300 than S400 to shoot down. Uh, if I'm not mistaken, they have a significantly larger diameter. Um, and uh, also, uh, since they'll be used at longer range, they'll probably have longer flight times, maybe? It all depends on the radar cross-section of the incoming uh, missile. and the response time of the command and control unit after being detected by the targeting by the detection radar and then whether the targeting radar can uh continue to track the incoming rocket or the incoming missile and then also it depends on the mechanism of detonation itself for instance uh the iron dome doesn't fly one missile into another the defending missile detonates at a distance near the incoming rocket to take it out, to generate an explosion big enough, strong enough, uh, and release sharpnels uh, uh, to, uh, according to something called the scattering field to take out the incoming uh, rocket. So it is a technical question. I don't have the answer for it. But the straightforward way of thinking when it comes to that is that you need to look at the traje- trajectory of the incoming missile Look at the flight pattern of the defending missile, uh, the detection radar, uh, the radar cross-section of uh, the incoming missile, and the detonation uh, pattern or uh, method of the defending missile. And then you can decide whether that defending missile can take out the incoming missile to which degree or what degree of, of probability or confidence. The, the, this, is, this is how, this is the block diagram of... of, of uh, Missile defense systems, basically. Thank you. Uh, and it should be noted that the attackums apparently are quite a bit faster than the, the Gimlers are as well. And that's, uh, that again makes it a little bit more difficult sometimes. Uh, Spring? I am good. Nice to see you back. Um, my question, it will be for Bertrand because it's related with the, with the Italian press that I was watching. And uh, it's the discussions about Draghi. Uh, to need to be kept as prime minister. Um, I read that M. Cinque Strelle Lacerato es contro sul uccita del ministri, meaning that uh, the M5 uh, wounded is against uh, the exit of the, manage, the minister, um, afraid of the result of the next elections, and that uh, Forza Italia without Draghi will be... Um, going to elections. Did I understand everything full, the full picture, please, Bertrand? You do understand the full picture. Uh, I might note as a uh, asterisk that nobody understands the full picture when it comes to Italian politics, but you're doing a, a wonderful job understanding it, Spring. I might add that uh, the whole topic is frozen until next Wednesday when uh, Draghi is uh, going to face the parliament for a uh, What appears to be right now a uh, confidence or non-confidence vote, but might, but might uh, turn out to be a non-vote, depending on uh, you know, what will happen from uh, n- now to next uh, Wednesday. If the situation is developing, in the meanwhile, Draghi 